Good morning. I'm so glad you could be with me today in our Wednesdays in the Word. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans. Uh, we've been examining the opening chapters of Romans, and today I hope to conclude our study of chapter 3. I'm going to pick up our reading today in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Well, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Uh, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We have been discovering in these opening chapters of the book of Romans the reality that all men and women stand as sinners and condemned before the God who is really there. Oh, we differ from one another in how morally degenerate perhaps we've been living our lives. But we don't differ from one another when compared to the righteousness and holiness of God. We find ourselves clearly sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God is the way 3.23 puts it. In verse 16 of the first chapter, Paul precedes the discussion of that reality by saying he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Then, having talked about the wonder of the gospel and the power of the gospel, then he says this is the reason everybody needs it. And starting in verse 17, he begins to discuss the very reality that all are sinners all rebel against God, and as a consequence, all face accountability before God. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face judgment, as Hebrews 9 tells us. That is the reality. And all of us are in a predicament because a holy God cannot have sin dwell in his presence, and a just God requires penalty for sin to be paid. God is not only loving he is holy and just and righteous, and he can't stop being any of those things. <laughs> and so before that God, each one of us is in a hopeless condition because all have sinned, as I say, and fall short of the glory of God. And it really would be a hopeless situation. Ephesians chapter 2 describes humanity as by nature objects of wrath without God, hopeless and helpless in this world. That was our circumstance. And no amount of turning over a new leaf, trying to do a better job, uh, having a religious dimension to our lives, perhaps going through religious ceremonies and rites, none of that ultimately changes the fact that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are ultimately accountable before him. A pretty hopeless picture. But the wonder of the gospel is that God intervened in that hopelessness. But God is the phrase used in Romans chapter 3. God said, you're in a hopeless situation, but because I love you, I won't leave you there. I will do something to provide a way to solve the unsolvable. And of course, what he did was send his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. He died. 
He paid the penalty required for sin and rebellion. And he offers a salvation to those who place their faith in him. In the last times together, we were looking at the amazing word justified and the word redeemed and seeing the wonder that emerges out of those words, both tied to the shed blood of Christ and his death on our behalf. We ended with the, with the very plain statement that these truths, this amazing provision that God has made, has to be appropriated by faith. People must make a choice to trust in it. We talked about faith and how faith requires a direct object. All people have faith. The difference between people is what they have faith in. And God says, I want you to determine to place your faith, your ability to trust and rest and have confidence, and I want you to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody benefits from the solution God offers to the unsolvable problem unless they choose to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now today, in the remaining verses in the third chapter, uh, God presents to us a couple of different questions that help to crystallize some of the great implications of these three chapters and the amazing provision of the cross, the provision of the message of the gospel. The first of these questions we encounter in verses 27 and 28. Let me read it to you again. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Uh, no, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. <laughs> what becomes of our boasting? Let's frame it a slightly different way. What would somebody be boasting about? The boasting would have something to do with what we could contribute to changing our hopeless circumstance. What we could contribute, in other words, toward our own salvation. And so the question comes, isn't there anything I can do to contribute toward my salvation so that I, in some way at least, could boast about my contribution? Something I added to what Jesus did for me. Isn't there something that I'm able to contribute? <laughs> Boasting and the desire to boast, the desire to feel like we can do something, is endemic to the human condition. In 1 John chapter 2, uh, John, under direction of the Holy Spirit, talks to us about the nature of our age, the world, the culture in which we find ourselves, the ways of thinking that people hold to who surround us. Then it says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. And in verse 16 of chapter 2 of 1 John, it says, for all that is in the world, meaning that culture, that way of thinking, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You notice that pride of life? That's talking about the idea of people having confidence in what they can do. People believing that they have the capability to achieve something. And particularly it shows up in relationship to our salvation. Because people from their earliest years want to believe that they have some ability to contribute something to the salvation of their life. And God says, here's the question. What becomes of our boasting? And the answer is, there's nothing you can boast about. 
There's nothing you can contribute to your salvation. Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the great teachers of the word from a previous generation, this was a quote he made one time. Man is incurably addicted to the principle of doing something toward his own salvation. Even as a person comes to understand this message of the gospel, the wonder of the gospel that Paul was not ashamed of, they're still addicted to thinking, I can do something to add to it. I can do something that in addition to the gospel, I also could contribute to my salvation. (laughs) What we need to keep reminding ourselves after these three chapters that talk about our problem and God's only solution to it, we need to keep reminding ourselves that in point of fact, we actually are helpless and hopeless. Nothing you and I can boast about, ultimately, that contributes to our salvation. Jesus made this very, very plain back in the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 20 of chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew, listen to these words, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of all of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. (laughs) And quite frankly, nobody's does. So the point is, we're in an impossible circumstance. We all fall short, which is, of course, the message in chapter 3. We all fall short. And that's why we need to be justified in Jesus Christ. We can't do anything to change our circumstance. Now, that reality, that there's nothing we can boast about, there's nothing we can bring to the table, nothing we can come away with thinking that we've at least achieved that and God's going to honor that in some way to save us. That idea that we have no nothing to boast about offends people because people always think they're better than they are and the human condition is such that we want to believe that in some way at least we can contribute to the solution to our problem. Listen, God says there's nothing you can do and you're actually worse than you think you are. (laughs) You are helpless and hopeless before me. There's nothing you can boast about in this salvation. There is a humility inherent in responding to the gospel. Part of repentance and faith, part of true repentance, is to see ourselves differently. (laughs) To see ourselves no longer the way the world sees itself, pride of life. Instead, we see ourselves differently. We We come and we acknowledge, yes, Lord, you're right. I am a sinner. Yes, I am cut off from you. I've fallen short. And there's nothing I can do to change my condition. Seeing ourselves differently. We not only admit our sin, but we believe our sin actually matters. And we also accept the frailty and inadequacy of our own lives, that there's nothing we can do to solve our sin. Will you accept that truth about yourself? Will you accept it as God has defined it here for us? God leaves us no room to boast To the degree that we start to think we have something to boast about, it shows we've not understood this amazing gospel that's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Think how how God puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. (laughs) It's only our faith, not our works in what Christ has done for us that leads to our salvation. 
that leads to our being justified, our being redeemed, as we looked at those words previously. This is what the passage means by the law of faith. Will you obey that law? The law of faith says there's nothing I can do. I only can look to Christ. He's done everything to save me. I hope you can see that this day. Well, the second of the questions we encounter in verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. The question that comes before us here is that question, is God the God of the Jews only? And a way to rephrase that, because I think you're, we can miss the point of the question, we'll rephrase it this way. Does the gospel apply to everybody? Do these truths that we've been discovering apply to everyone? This message that we're all sinners and separated, nothing we can do, nothing we can boast about. Is this true for everyone? Or does God sort of have different standards for different people? How does God deal with us as human beings? Does God approach us in sort of a different strokes for different folks kind of an orientation? And the answer, of course, in these verses, as you would expect, is absolutely not. God has a single standard for everyone, and that is the standard of his own perfect holiness and righteousness. All have to align with that. All have to be righteous in his eyes. <laughs> no one can be accepted any other way than by being righteous in his definition of righteousness and holiness. And the truth of the matter is, whether somebody is a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter what our age, what our ethnicity, what our era of history, all are sinful before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God at the risk of being redundant with verse 23 of the third chapter. And thus, everyone, independent of their religious stripe, is lost and without hope apart from Christ. It's true of the Jews, and it's true of the Gentiles. It's true of the religious person, and it's true of the pagan. Everyone fails God's standard. Everyone fails the law. And they fail their own conscience, as we've seen in the second chapter. And therefore, everyone is under judgment. Everyone is in a hopeless condition. Everybody, Jew, Greek, Gentile, Everybody needs the same solution because there's only one solution. And if you've not caught anything else, please catch that in these opening chapters of Romans. There's only one solution. <laughs> one solution. Think how Jesus puts this in John chapter 14 and verse 6 where he says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. <laughs> Jew, Greek, doesn't matter. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Why? Because all of sending comes short of the glory of God. Everybody needs a solution to the unsolvable. And the solution is the same for everyone. 
repenting and believing in the gospel. This is the same point that we encounter in Acts chapter 4 and in verse 12. The early disciples are uh, essentially defending the gospel before the religious leaders of the day. And look at how they put it in verse 12 of chapter 4 of Acts. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Same thing that John was say, John was telling us, Jesus said in John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father but by me. Here, no one, no other name given among heaven, where under heaven, whereby we must be saved. <laughs> All right, what's the point of the question? Well, the second question is essentially, does God have different ways for different people? Uh, and the answer is no, there is no different way. There's only one way, one way to the Father. And as a result of that, all of mankind breaks into just two groups, not Jew and Greek, not religious and not religious. No, no, just two groups. It's a very simple picture the scripture presents to us. All of humanity is in one of two groups. Group one, those who have become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for us. The other group, those who refuse to repent and believe and thus are not children of God. Because the only ones who can be saved, the only ones as a result who are given the right to be called the children of God are those who believe in his name. And so the second question, does the gospel apply to everybody? And the answer is yes. There is no other way for anybody. We all must bow the knee. We all must place our faith in him. He is the only answer for sin. And the difference between the two groups, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and those who haven't, is the difference between those groups is where they will spend eternity. Separated from God or in the presence of God? Unforgiven with no hope or forgiven with a future and a hope? It's an absolute division. And understand the first three chapters of Romans are reminding us of that very absolute division. Which group are you in today? Are you in that group that says, I accept God's indictment of me and the impossibility of my situation, and therefore I admit it to God, and I gladly throw myself on the Lord Jesus Christ as my hope, my solution, my faith. I trust and what he did on behalf of me. Well, the third question, and let's draw it to a close this way, we encounter in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The third question is essentially this, and he closes out this extended discussion with it. Does the gospel this message of what Jesus did on our behalf, solving our hopeless situation, does the gospel make the law somehow unimportant? Do we, in other words, as the words put it here, overthrow the law by our faith? Does the gospel and its implications here mean 
that God's law really has no purpose and application to our lives any longer? Does the gospel, in other words, mean that you and I can simply ignore the law of God as it's revealed in the scriptures and as it's revealed even within our own conscience? <clears throat> what is the relationship between the redeemed and God's law? How that question is answered is central to understanding how and why we grow as believers. And that is going to be a theme beginning to unfold in the fourth chapter and working its way through chapter 8. And we'll be examining that, Lord willing, uh, as we continue in our Wednesdays in the Word. And so I hope you'll join me for those studies. Here's the answer that we're given in advance of those chapters. The fact is, the new covenant in Christ, the wonder of the cross and the promise of the gospel to us, underscores that the law actually stays in force. If God could simply ignore sin, the cross wouldn't have been needed. But God can never just ignore sin. That isn't going to happen. God's holiness and justice never changes. And therefore, sin would always require separation or sacrifice to solve the problem. So the law of God never gets put away, but it gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In other words, God's standards haven't changed. But the solution to failing that standard has changed. Think how it puts it in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Jesus is speaking here. And he says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, God's righteousness and holiness never changes. And the law expresses what his righteousness and holiness is all about. And there's never any of that that will ever change. Any of that that will ever be put aside. Any of that that doesn't stay an accountability point for every one of us. The law is not put aside, but the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Sin separates us from God, and that will always be true. Only in Christ can we meet the demands of the law. Only in the justification that we find in him and the clothing of our lives with his righteousness can we satisfy the demands of those laws because it satisfies the righteous and holy nature of God. And only as we stand in Christ will we continue to stand as righteous people despite our stumbling and failing even as redeemed children of God. And make no mistake about it, you and I will stumble at times. And the law has not gone away. But God has a solution for us because of the cross in spite of our stumblings. Think of how it's put in Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? <laughs> Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprison everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus we are all sons of God through faith. No, the law is not set aside. The gospel doesn't mean that we don't have to pay attention to how we seek to live and grow, but it does mean that our failure and the culpability for that failure has been addressed by the cross. And our continuing stumbling is addressed by the cross. As 1 John 1, 9 puts it, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a solution permanently and a solution temporally to our stumbling in sin. But the reason we need that solution is because God's law always stands in place. His law reflects his righteous and holy character. Therefore, it can never be put away. Sin will always separate someone from God. And that's why we need continuing forgiveness. It's why we need the gospel and why it's we need Jesus Christ as our Savior now to continue to plead our case. As 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 puts it, he says, I'm writing to these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ saves us and keeps us saved. Not because God's law is set aside, but because God's law persists and the demands of it are solved in his grace and mercy. <laughs> That's why living a righteous life and seeking to continue to grow in our faith is the one thing that is crucial for all believers. Well, chapter 4 turns our attention and begins to develop for us through chapter 8, the wonder now is redeemed children of God, how we begin to build on the foundation of being justified and the foundation of being redeemed in Christ. Join me then. I pray that we can gather again next week in Wednesday in the Word and open and unfold chapter 4. God bless. <music>